Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. On our previous episode, we completed reading the last chapter of They Can't Kill Us All, the story of the struggle for black lives by Wesley Lowry. Now we have an afterword to read, which is about 12 pages long, so we will knock that out this episode. Before we do that, I would like to ask people to please share this episode link on whichever social media platform you frequent the most often. I'd like to also remind people that every day at 8 o'clock a.m., we put out new episodes of Rock for Reading Daily across all streaming platforms. I'd like to also remind people that every Tuesday at noon, new episodes of From Rockford are released by the May 30th Alliance Podcast Network, a podcast series hosted by Ari Perez and myself. And every Thursday at noon, new episodes of The Social Construct of Leslie are released. So be sure to be on the lookout for both of those pieces of content as well. Now, let's dive into the afterword, which is entitled Three Days in July. The movement for black lives, as activists have begun calling the protest movement, and the national push for police reform have faded from the national consciousness during the first months of 2016. In stark contrast to its constant presence in 2014, and for most of 2015. There were bursts of attention, ongoing fallout in Chicago following the release in late, the release in late 2015 of the video of Laquan McDonald being shot and killed, and the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, most significantly. But in each instance, Americans' focus on race and justice landed like another strong wave, only to recede right back into the wide ocean. Six months into 2016, I was fact-checking our latest piece. Six months into 2016, I was fact-checking our latest piece. My colleague Kimberly Kendi and I had analyzed the number of Americans killed to date and discovered that even after more than a year of protest and outrage, police nationwide were on pace to take more lives in 2016 than they had in 2015. Yet none of the men and women killed by police in 2016 have received the same level of attention from the media or had a galvanized activist, as had those killed just months earlier. The calendar had been predictably dominated by the presidential election, but even there, policing had yet to become a major focus of debate. For racial justice activists, the election was an opportunity to pressure candidates to adopt positions on policing and criminal justice reform, as well as to speak out on other issues of racial disparity. It remained to be seen how successful they would be. Quote, People know that the police are still killing people. What we've got to figure out now is what a victory looks like, end quote. Kayla Reed, the Ferguson protester still working for the Organization for Black Struggle in St. Louis, told me in early 2016, quote, there isn't going to be a single bill passed that will suddenly encompass all of the ways the system marginalizes black and brown people. We have to redo the whole damn thing, end quote. Many of the young activists who have been driven into the street by the police killings of 2014 and 2015 have begun to move away from daily protesting and organizing work. Kayla Reed and Jonetta Elsey have both been re-enrolled in college classes. After his run for mayor, DeRay McKeeson had rejoined the Baltimore City Schools as an administrator. Sean King, now a New York Daily News columnist, Kwame Rose and Martise Johnson had all assumed roles as surrogates for the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, rallying votes on his behalf. Many of them and others in the movement felt they needed to catch their breath. Robust conversations circulated about the viralization of the deaths of individuals and the fetishizing of black death. Perhaps, some argued, 
Not every video needed to be shared and played on a constant loop. Quote, it's traumatic to see a hashtag of someone killed by the police every day. It messes with your psyche, end quote, Reed said. Quote, and the protest movement is bigger than just the police, end quote. How could such a boisterous and seemingly omnipresent protest movement just fade from the streets? Where had the movement for black life gone? As I finished the round of fact-checking, a tweet from DeRay McKeeson with the hashtag Alton Sterling caught my eye. It took me seconds to find the video, shot with the cell phone camera, of Sterling's final moments on July 5, 2016. Two officers are yelling at him. They tase him, they tackle him, and then the bullets are fired into his chest. The Post has an overnight reporting desk, a team of night owl reporters who handle late-breaking news, so I flagged the shooting for my colleagues to make sure they had seen it. And then I went home to wait. I paced my living room and later my bedroom, refreshing Twitter. I follow a few thousand people, and with each refresh in my phone, a new group of them were voicing pain, anger, and outrage as they, too, watched the video. We each cope with these deaths differently. I escaped by reporting, making calls, digging into the police department that was involved, and tracking down the friends and family of the slain to better understand how the moment of their death fits within the context of the rest of their life. Doing this keeps my mind busy. Often we all have an urge to, quote, do something, end quote. For me, reporting is that something. The videos that surface at night are typically the hardest. The night of Sterling's death, I tried to do a little preliminary reporting, but I couldn't. It was too late to call anyone. I set an early alarm, knowing that my job the next day would be to find witnesses, law enforcement officials, and context. And then I lay restless. How do you sleep when you know that soon you'll need to tell the story of the death of yet another black man? I was taken back to the countless days when the fierce urgency surrounding the latest black person killed by the police had dictated my sleep, work, and life. It felt like the night the video of Walter Scott was released, the afternoon the officer who killed Sam DuBose was charged, and the night the KKK was rumored to be at Mizzou after President Wolf's resignation. When my phone went off, I've been asleep only minutes. I jolted out of bed. Before I could catch my breath, a frantic day of reporting and writing was already behind me. I stayed in the newsroom until late that night, finalizing our coverage of Sterling's death and the national outrage it had awoken. Sometime around 11 p.m., a friend from college sent me a link to live Facebook video feed from a woman in Minnesota. An officer had just shot her boyfriend. She screamed. As the camera panned, you could see a dying Philando Castile struggling to seize his final breaths. Over the woman's shoulder stood the officer who had shot him, his gun still trained on the dying man. For the two years since Ferguson, it had been more or less my job to bear witness to pain and trauma. Once you're known as a reporter who covers policing and justice, your email accounts and voicemail boxes become depositories of death. Pleading messages from mothers and widows of those who have been killed by officers who beg you to tell their story. Envelopes from inmates stuffed with legal filings and police reports arrived at work addressed to me. As hard as it is to be in receipt of so much rightful pain and sorrow, video of shootings, tasings, arrests, and beatings is different. There is no way to filter it. The only way to decide what to cover is to watch them all. To date, the hardest video for me to watch had been the extended version of Tamir Rice's death, of Tamir Rice's death, 
in which his sister frantically writes to his body only to be tackled by officers. But even that video hadn't brought me to tears. The video feed of Diamond Reynolds, Castile's girlfriend, was different. Quote, fuck, I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand out, end quote, the officer screams at Reynolds. Quote, you told him to get his ID, sir, his driver's license, end quote, she insists in response. Quote, oh my God, please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that, end quote. Responding officers eventually removed Reynolds and her four-year-old daughter from the car where Castile was dying. In the video, as they take her into custody, Reynolds, who up until this point has been unbelievably composed, begins to lose herself to what has just happened. She cries, and then she prays. She pleads with Jesus, a broken woman begging for divine intervention. As Reynolds then begins to scream, her four-year-old daughter interjects, quote, it's okay. I'm right here with you, end quote. I sprang up from my desk and ran to the newsroom bathroom to throw up. Then I began reporting. Soon I was on the phone with Castile's sister, who gathered with her family in a Minnesota hospital. She sobbed as she told me the only thing they knew. Quote, he's gone, end quote. The shootings of Sterling and Castile together prompted a reawakening. Among the cities that hosted major protests was Dallas, where the police had gone to great pains to support the protesters. Cordoning off areas for demonstrators and posing for photos next to signs calling for reforms and justice. Unknown to the crowd, a single gunman would soon prey on this gathering, specifically attacking white police officers and what he later told police negotiators was a targeted retribution for the police killings of black men. A week later, Another lone wolf attacked officers in Baton Rouge, killing three. The deaths and injury of the officers in these two cities again shook the nation, underscoring with renewed urgency the depth of the anger and distrust toward police still coursing through America. The attacks on police officers enraged the law enforcement community, who for years had worried about such targeted attacks. In a country with millions of easily accessible guns and an increasing national distrust of institutions, specifically the police, it wasn't hard to imagine the ease with which someone determined to harm officers could carry out such an attack. Quote, with the number of police shootings that have occurred that seem to be totally unjustified, somewhere in this country, someone was going to do such a thing. End quote. John Krizat, a former prosecutor and judge in Dallas, told me after the shooting. Civil rights groups and the young activists behind the protests that have propelled the movement quickly condemned the shootings. But opponents of the protest movement blamed the rhetoric of the movement for black lives for the murders of the officers in Dallas and Baton Rouge, a tactic not unlike the one employed by those who blamed Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders for the riots of the 1960s. After the Dallas attack, President Obama convened a 33-person conference at the White House, a conversation that ran for four and a half hours, which the president told attendees was among the longest single-subject conferences of his presidency. The attendees were a mix, young activists like DeRay McKeeson, civil rights stalwarts like Al Sharpton, police chiefs and heads of several major police unions, and government officials, including Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Quote, the president lived up to his reputation as a former law professor, end quote. NAACP President Cornell William Brooks told me after the meeting, quote, he spent quite a bit of time listening, 
probing and guiding the discussion, occasionally deploying the Socratic method to get some of the day's best responses, end quote. Among the first exchanges was one between St. Paul Mayor Chris Coleman, who sharply defended his officers' actions in response to massive protests that had broken out after the death of Philando Castile and Micah Grimm, a local Black Lives Matter activist who had been leading the demonstrations. Coleman called some of the protesters, quote, disgraceful, end quote, while Grimm shot back that it was their democratic duty to take to the streets and the democratic obligation of the police to protect them. Quote, I responded by telling him that the protests aren't going to stop until we see actual change, end quote. Grimm told me later, quote, and that begins with seeing an officer held accountable for killing somebody, end quote. I'd first met Grimm months earlier when I traveled to Minneapolis to cover the demonstrations in Minneapolis after the police shooting of Jamar Clark, an unarmed black man. As I followed a parade of marchers, Grimm was seated in the back of a pickup truck near the front, shouting protest chants into a bullhorn. But she spoke more softly in the White House. This was her first trip to Washington, D.C., much less to the White House. As she sparred with the mayor and the police chief of her city, she received an unexpected expression of support. One of the other police chiefs in the room slid her a handwritten note, written on a sheet from a White House notepad. Quote, don't be deterred from speaking truth to power, end quote, read the note, written by Dean Esserman, the chief of the New Haven Police Department. When it was his turn to speak, DeRay McKeeson drilled into Obama with a long list of complaints. He told the president that the language he used to describe the protesters had, quote, come a long way, end quote. But he implored Obama to stop sprinkling into his speeches and addresses to black audiences urging to vote. As McKeeson explained it, many in the community interpreted Obama's exhortations as condescending and reductionist. McKeeson asked the president to tell the FBI to stop having its agents drop in at the homes of prominent activists in the weeks before the Republican and Democratic conventions, Jonetta Elsey, Bree Newsom, McKeeson himself, and at least half a dozen other prominent activists were visited by federal agents, which they believed to be an attempt to intimidate them. And, McKeeson noted, the president had been quick to visit Dallas after the officers were killed there, but even two years later had yet to set foot in Ferguson. Quote, well, I'm glad you have a long list for me, end quote, the president quipped in response. Let's take a moment to have a reflection. We're about halfway through this chapter or halfway through the afterwards. So let's have a reflection. Again, here we see some correlation to other pieces of literature that we've read, specifically Hinterland, which we read just before reading They Can't Kill Us All, which in the last chapter also spoke about some of the targeted police shootings that happened. And... I think one of the things that's important to talk about when we get into any violence in this country, whether it's state sanctioned or individual violence, is that this country provides access to the number one tool that is used in violence, which is guns. Guns are provided in an abundance. And because of how much money corporations and businesses make from guns, this country makes sure that anybody's, I think I've read a statistic about it being like three guns for every person in this country or something like that. And so part of addressing police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice inherently is about addressing gun violence because police officers perpetuate gun violence. And whenever you perpetuate something, 
when that thing happens to you as well, it is it's still a, a tragic thing that has happened. Any loss of life is tragic. But you have to also look at it in a way where you are protecting this status quo. You are protecting this system that allows for your life to be put in danger. And so I think that there is a deeper conversation to be had about those police officers being targeted and killed. We read in a chapter earlier about black people inside of that church in Charleston being targeted and killed and being the victims of mass shootings. And so the way to, to, to alter those things is to put a higher emphasis on gun, on gun control in this country. And it is not about trying to, demonize protesters or blame people who protested or who are crying for or have advocated for a reform of police departments or abolition of police departments for a lone wolf going out and committing this act. And nobody's in these throughout this book and throughout the movement for black lives in this country. It has not been one that is telling people to go out and kill police officers and try to get this solved through violence because that's not even a possibility, but it has been one about challenging the status quo of violence that exists and permeates this country and this society. And that, that status quo of violence affects everybody. And then I think it's very admirable. The, some of these, critiques that DeRay McKeeson put forth toward Obama as well. And I think it's very telling that he went to Dallas after those police officers were shot and two years after Mike Brown had been murdered in Ferguson, he had never went there. Again, very telling of the type of president he was and the type of man he is. And then again, throughout this afterward, we've seen more and more names of people whose lives have been tragically taken by the police. And we also continue to see the the importance of Wesley Lowry telling these people's stories. Okay, let's continue reading. As he facilitated the conversation, Obama often glanced to his left at Brittany Packnett, a 31-year-old Ferguson protester and Campaign Zero co-founder who speaks with unwavering confidence and poise. This was at least the third time Packnett had met with Obama, who after one meeting had been so struck by her command of the room that he pulled her aside to encourage her to one day run for office. Her father, Ronald Packnett, had been a prominent black minister and activist in St. Louis before dying in 1996 at the age of 45. Her mother, Gwendolyn Packnett, remains a well-known educator, community leader, and philanthropist. Quote, my dad was an activist and mom has always been in community leadership end quote, Packnett recalls, quote, so truth be told, my first protest was probably while I was still in a stroller, end quote. Packnett recalls a childhood of relative privilege. Her parents, who had both grown up in households with meager means, had worked to ensure that their children could have the things they hadn't. They lived in a nice section of St. Louis, drove good cars, and went to esteemed private schools. But Packnett recalls being raised with a, quote, double consciousness, end quote, having access to money and privilege, but also feeling deep pride in her identity as a black woman and as a black Christian. She read the autobiography of Malcolm X, 
and sat patiently next to her parents at evening Bible studies. Quote, our social responsibility was the most important thing, end quote, Packnett told me about her upbringing. Quote, and I was raised in a liberation theology. We worshiped the table-flipping revolutionary Jesus with brown skin and Afro hair, end quote. One evening when she was eight years old, her father and younger brother came bursting through the front door, her brother in tears. They had been out for a drive and had gotten pulled over. As the officer had approached the vehicle, he had asked Mr. Packnett to step out of the car and then had thrown him onto the hood and put him in handcuffs. The officer didn't believe that this black man could possibly own the Mercedes he was driving. The entire family was outraged, and Packnett's brother was traumatized. Her father, who was among the most politically connected black men in St. Louis, called the police chief and demanded that the officer apologize personally in front of his son. As she grew older, Packnett became an outspoken minority in her predominantly white private schools, sprinkling her class assignments with asides about equity and racial justice and helping to organize a regular seminar on diversity and inclusion. That drew backlash in the hallways of her majority white high school. She recalls that one particular student, a young white man from a prominent local family who was a year ahead of her, began following Packnett around in the hallways, mocking her. Quote, is my whiteness oppressing you today? End quote. He would ask as she moved from class to class. She would ignore him. Then, one day she did it. She turned around, just outside the women's locker room, and told him to stop speaking to her that way. In return, he spit in her face. Packnett said her track coach, one of her mentors in high school, insisted she tell the principal, who forced the boy to apologize. Immediately, the memory of her late father's interaction with the officer who pulled him over flashed back into her mind. That officer, like this boy, had been made to apologize, but had either actually been held accountable? Or did the system send a message that abuse of a black body can be negated and papered over by an, quote, I'm sorry, end quote, no matter how reluctantly uttered? Quote, it's this idea that all the person had to do was say, I'm sorry and then they never had to be held accountable for their actions, end quote, Packnett said. Quote, thinking about those two incidents is, for me, a constant reminder that this system was never built for us in the first place, end quote. In the years since, Packnett had occupied a seat at some of the same tables at which her parents had sat, her activism undeterred by that incident. In college, at Washington University in St. Louis, she organized demonstrations and rallies on behalf of the campus food service workers, ultimately helping them win their first across-the-board wage increase in years. By the time Michael Brown was killed, she was working as executive director for Teach for America, St. Louis, spending many days in meetings with donors, leaders of nonprofits, and community leaders. She saw herself as an inside-the-room advocate for radical change. Quote, I had let a certain amount of comfort and privilege take hold of my social justice work, end quote, she said. Quote, I wasn't sacrificing my body very much anymore in physical protest, end quote. That changed in August 2014 when she showed up outside the Ferguson Police Department a few days after Michael Brown was killed. With demonstrators swelling beneath the summer sun, some city leaders invited Packnett inside the police station for a private meeting with the chief. It was the type of convening that often occurs in the days after a shooting. The powers that be assemble a group of black leaders, 
insist they are doing everything they can and request that these leaders help cool the crowds. This time, Packnet said no. She wouldn't attend the meeting. She was staying outside. Quote, sitting in a room with a corrupt police chief inside a building while traumatized black people protested outside was not the right step. End quote. Packnet recalled, quote, it was time to stop sitting in the ivory tower and hypothesizing and actually get back to doing what I knew in my spirit and in my upbringing was necessary to change these policing systems, end quote. By the end of the week, she was a protest regular. But soon enough, the movement would call on her to sit at the table again. She applied for and was accepted to a spot on the Ferguson Commission, the task force convened by Missouri Governor Jay Nixon after the unrest in 2014. Next, impressed after meeting her at his first sit-down with the young activists who had been awakened in Ferguson, President Obama invited PACNET to join his president's task force on 21st century policing. Quote, everyone has a role, end quote, PACNET said after the post-Dallas White House meeting. Quote, there are some people who need to be the revolutionary, and there are some people who need to be at the table in the White House. And I knew it was my job to translate the pain I had seen and experienced in the streets and bring it into these halls of power, end quote. PACNET explains the protest movement as a series of escalating waves. Its conception came from the deaths of Oscar Grant, Trayvon Martin, and Jordan Davis, which mobilized black Americans in a demand for justice. Its grand birth, first in Ferguson and then throughout the nation in the fall of 2014, was prompted by the deaths of Eric Garner, John Crawford, and Michael Brown, the cases that showed those same black Americans that justice for these killed by the police was not forthcoming. As the list of names grew, each week, each day providing another, so did the urgency of the uprising that would become a movement. The year 2015 brought a third wave of anger and pain. Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Sam DuBose. Another round of death in which the now pain calls for police accountability became insistent demands. The year 2016, which began sleepily, quickly saw the beginning of what most likely will become a fourth wave. As President Obama prepares to leave the White House, it remains to be seen whether the moment birthed by the broken promise of his presidency will live on through the season of his successor. Quote, the protests will continue, end quote. Packnett said confidently when I called her from Cleveland on the first night of the Republican National Convention in July. Quote, regardless of who is elected, we're going to work to continue this level of engagement with the next administration. There's just too much at stake, end quote. While the targeted killings of the officers in Dallas and Baton Rouge prompted some commentators and other members of the media to declare the movement for black lives dead, the activists and organizers who have been the foot soldiers have not gone quietly into the night. A few days later came the non-fatal shooting in North Miami of behavioral therapist Charles Kinsey, who was lying on the ground with his hands in the air, begging not to be shot as he tried to soothe his autistic patient when an officer fired his gun three times. Kinsey's hands were up. He yelled, quote, don't shoot, end quote, and the officer fired anyway. Quote, I was thinking as long as I have my hands up, they're not going to shoot me, end quote. Kinsey told local television station WSVN from his hospital bed, quote, why was I wrong, end quote. In the days after the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, 
Thousands of people used an online tool provided by Campaign Zero to petition their local elected officials to demand police reform. Just before July 18th, as the political media gathered in Cleveland for the GOP convention, thousands of demonstrators took to the streets in more than 30 cities across the nation in a weekend of activism they titled Freedom Now. Quote, we have no choice but to keep going, end quote, Packnett told me. Quote, if one of the central demands of the movement is to stop killing us, and they're still killing us, then we don't get to stop either, end quote. July 2016, Cleveland. And we're going to end this episode here. Tomorrow, 8 o'clock a.m., we will have a recap, review of the entire book of They Can't Kill Us All. And then the day after that, we will begin reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis.